the complexity, the amazing literature that we have in Genesis 1. Like, as I was reading it, like, there was multiple times where I'm reading, I'm going, wow, like, like that's what? Talking about, like, the history of Sarah and Hagar, that you read it in, Gen in Genesis, and it just looks like a narrative story. And then we, we ask, you know, well, well, what if somebody came along and said, well, you know, you can interpret that as an analogy too. And you know, people would probably react saying, uh, no, 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 that's, it's, it's just, it's, it's just narrative. It's just history. And then you say, well, but it was the apostle Paul that said that in Galatians, that you can understand the story to be an analogy, which doesn't stop it from being a historical account, but it just means that it's deeper than just a journalistic report. The things that Adam and Eve experienced were things that Israel was going to experience are things that we are going to experience that both helps us in the sense of not being caught by surprise, but perhaps more importantly of not despairing. Hey everyone, this is What Your Pastor Didn't Tell You. Today I'm talking to Greg Davidson, one of the writers of The Manifold Beauty of Genesis. We're going to talk about some very fascinating topics. One, we're going to talk about is good reason to think Genesis was written as a song. We're going to be talking about what the ancient Israelite would have seen Genesis as, as a creation covenant with God. We're also going to be talking about how there was an emphasis on land in Genesis 1 and what could, that could mean for us, us as we're reading the text. Hey, Greg, how are you doing today? And uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Thank you for having me on. Happy to be here. Uh, so I, I often in this context, describe who I am as being the somewhat odd product of two grandfathers that were preachers uh, <laughs> who had an appreciation for, for science and the son of a father who was a biologist who had an appreciation for scripture. So I grew up in an environment that was kind of immersed in both uh, theology and scripture, Christianity and science, and, and actually never grew up feeling or sensing any of, of the tension that so many people do. Uh, as a result, though, of, of starting off on a career in the sciences and being a Christian, a lot of people would ask me questions about, you know, how, how do you reconcile those? That resulted in a number of books that were focusing more on the, the reconciliation or understanding the intersection between science and Christian faith. And eventually that grew into a, a, a desire to, to delve more deeply into the creation story itself, even independently of science, which is where this interview is leading now. Now, you actually wrote this book. Um, well, you, you wrote this book with Kenneth Turner. Kenneth Turner is like the big Old Testament guy. How, what kind of uh, input did you have compared to like, you know, when he's like the, the, the big... Like you're like the kind of the science guy and he's the expert, but, but did, did you come up with the ideas like, and you're like, Hey, you know, I want to write about it later. Or how'd that come across? Yeah. So I'm the science guy and there's almost no science in this book at all. So how does that work? Uh, so it's a good question. Uh, so the, the idea behind the book uh, was mine where, uh, and, and this kind of gets at the motivation for the book too, is that with most of scripture, we'll talk about the richness of scripture where you can read a passage nine times and the 10th time you see something new. But when we get to the creation story, the angst over getting it right and apparent conflicts with science has typically collapsed that conversation into what is the monochromatic singular understanding of that text. 
and we've actually lost that richness and beauty of, of the, the text. So I wanted to write a book that recaptured that sense of richness and beauty that recognized that there are there are multiple layers to that message and, and you know not to say that you can you know it means whatever you want it to mean that there's certainly interpretations that are just wrong but that there are a number of different layers to the message that as you read it and study it these new layers will begin to come out uh well so the the idea was there I knew that uh, my expertise in ancient cultures of uh, biblical times and the nuances of the Hebrew language are, are, were not adequate for the task. So Ken Turner was a friend of mine and I'd seen his writing, interacted with him for a number of years, uh, liked his approach to uh, understanding scripture. And so I approached him about joining up and doing this book project together. And he, he loved the idea. Uh, at the Initially, he was tied up with a commentary on Habakkuk. So once he finished that, then we started in on it. And it's it was a wonderful interaction. Uh, you know, we, we split up the, the layers where I took approximately half the layers, he would take the other half. And it was kind of funny how that worked out because I would send him a, a first draft and he would only make about four or five comments, which resulted in me having to rewrite the entire thing. And then he would send me his drafts and rather than me commenting and sending back, he would just say, just tweak it to make it flow so that it fits with the other layers. And so I would retool and rework what, what he sent. So hopefully when you read it, it kind of reads as, as one voice. Uh, for all all seven layers. Right. So today we're talking, talking about three, but there's actually seven. And it really is a great book as far as talking about like the complexity, the amazing literature that we have in Genesis 1. Like as I was reading it, like there was multiple times where I'm reading, I'm going, wow, like, like that's what? Like, you know, you things you just you you completely miss it and it's it's incredible like it's actually incredible to to understand that um yeah, and, and i will say that uh, none of the layers in this book are new to us we, we, we didn't invent any of these uh you know we researched and read the the, the literature uh that conservative biblical scholars have, have written and defended these various layers and one of the things we realized was the things that separate many of them that make them you know one incompatible with the other were, were actually just minor things and when you stripped out those non-essential elements from a particular understanding that it turned out that a lot of these layers become complementary so rather than being in competition with each other they're complementing each other where potentially all seven could be true uh, we, we don't suggest that it's an all or nothing proposition like if you read the book and it's like, well, five of them work for me, but not the other two. So wait, I'm going to toss it out. It's like, no, if a subset of them really resonate where you're, you're realizing that, that, you know, three or four, five of these layers uh, really make sense. That's a huge win because it's still accomplishing the objective of recognizing that this is a multi-layered text that is much richer and deeper than we've given it credit for. All right. Yeah. Wonderfully said. Okay. So, uh, can you give us, you know, a brief overview of your book, like 
you hear, we're going to talk about the three layers, but can you talk about all of them just very, very, very briefly, uh, I guess, the different layers? Sure. So, uh, so there's seven layers. The song, first one, the idea is not so much that this is something that would have been sung. It's more the idea that if you have something that is rich in poetic language, uh, whether it is read, whether it is chanted, whether it has attuned to it, it can still be described as hymnic or as something that approaches a song. Uh, the analogy layer is analogy to the uh, human work week and the things that can be learned about the importance of work and creating order from chaos. The polemic layer is a uh, comparing or challenging the pagan understandings of who God is and what the creation is and what the relationship is between the, the creation and the gods, where the, the writer of Genesis in many, many ways is making direct challenges to the views of the surrounding nations. And we may think that that's only relevant if you were living back then, but it actually turns out that it's very pertinent to today, that many of the things that we think of as ancient mythology, we've actually cycled back to, and we're, we're, we're finding some of those beliefs evident even today. Uh, the covenant layer is drawing on or making an observation that the the language of a covenant in the Old Testament has remarkable parallels to some of the ancient treaties from the Hittites and from the Mesopotamian uh, region. And there seems to be an intentional structure to uh, the covenant language and to the creation story that follows this pattern of these ancient treaties that God seems to be tapping into so that it, it makes it makes it very easy for the people of the time to understand that, oh, that, that this is a, a relationship that is being created in legal terms that I can directly relate to what I'm seeing in these treaties in the surrounding nations. Uh, the temple layer is making observations of the similarities between the creation story and Eden to the not only the Israelite temple, but the the sense of temples in general at the time, that a temple was not just a building where people went to worship. It was there was a sense of, at the time that a temple was a place where a god came down to earth and rested in that temple, where they they had a presence in the temple. And we see this language when you start to, to realize the similarities and you start to read through much of scripture, you start to see many examples of God resting or walking with his people in this temple kind of language. Um, and oftentimes that temple was on a mountain and you see the same language in the Old Testament of the temple mount and even Eden, you know, we often think of Eden as being kind of this subtropical lowland forest area. And yet if you're paying attention in scripture, it's 
always or often described as being associated with a mountain. Uh, the calendar layer, there is, Michael Lefevre wrote a, a recent book a few years ago that was did a, a really good job of kind of describing this idea that there is a parallel throughout the Old Testament where the festivals that are commemorating important events in the history of Israel line up with the agricultural cycle. And so there's this cadence, this rhythm of the agricultural cycle that is tapped into in order to illustrate theological truths. And we see that in microcosm in the Genesis story. So the calendar layer is trying to, to describe that. And then the last one is land, where there is a parallel between the uh, Eden and the land of Canaan, where Adam's story is Israel's story. So Adam's story is not just how things got started and how it messed up, uh, that his whole story of being given a land, of being told to cultivate, of being told to protect it, of failing to do so, of experiencing exile, and of then being restored is Israel's story that we see repeated over and over again, and it becomes our story as well. Uh, so we, this topic was uh, presented by Ken at the Evangelical Theological Society of America meeting uh, this past year, uh, kind of introducing the book. And there were a couple well-known young earth creationists that were in that meeting. And Ken straight up asked, you know, he said that, you know, it's too soon to really know how this is going to be received. Um, you know, broadly, including the Young Earth creation community. And he invited the, 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 the two guys that were in attendance to comment. And now, uh, granted, they had not read it yet, right? So they were just hearing the ideas presented. And both of them actually said that, that this was actually uh, encouraging and exciting to see that, uh, you know, they had no, no qualms or no issues with the idea of this being a multi-layered text. Uh, that said, now, there, there are going to be some people that are going to react because of describing things like the rich usage of poetic language that, you know, if one is dead set on defending uh, Genesis 1 as simply a scientific text or a journalistic report, then there's kind of a reaction or pushback against anything that, that smacks of, of poetic language. Yeah, well, it's interesting because it's like, I mean, who are we to say that the original writer couldn't have? added multiple layers to the text so you could have one specifically historical or scientific text but also additional meaning to it right yeah and, and we actually get into that in the introduction to the book mm. where you know in talking about like the history of sarah and hagar that you know it's you, you read it in, Gen in genesis and it just looks like a narrative story and then we we ask you know well, well what if somebody came along and said well you know you can interpret that as an analogy too and you know people would probably react saying uh, no 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 that's it's it's just it's it's just narrative it's just history and then you say well but it was the apostle paul that said that in galatians that you can understand the story to be an analogy which doesn't stop it from being a historical account but it just means that it's deeper than just a journalistic report. Yeah, completely.
Okay, so can you give us a, um, yeah, just can you go into your layer of um, Genesis 1 as a song and just give your evidence for why you think that it should be read that way? Sure. Uh, so going into this one, uh, because it does draw on this rich use of, of poetic language, uh, I think it's important to to step back from the specific understanding of Genesis to just this idea of what, what does it mean for the Bible to be true, right? Because that, that's, that ultimately that's what many Christians' concern is. Like, you know, I, are, are you suggesting that this was not true or not his, not historical? Uh, <clears throat> up until like the 16th and 17th centuries, there was not a general Christian scholarly consensus or thought of Genesis 1 being a scientific document. It wasn't until the rise of, of humanistic thinking and the scientific revolution where people started to, to argue that you know the highest form of communicating truth is scientific or journalistic. And as products of that Western culture, we, we often don't realize how influenced we are by that, where we have this sort of unconscious thought that, okay, well, if, if scientific and journalistic writing is the highest form of communicating truth, the Bible must be a scientific journalistic report. And we don't realize that what we're doing is defending the Bible by secularizing it, that we're, we're robbing it of its historical context and the culture into which it was written. So if we kind of do this, this, you know, gut check and say, all right, you know, let, let, let me let me not impose my 21st century Western mindset on the text. Let me back away from that and actually try to dive in and understand this from the perspective of the people that that that, that were receiving it. And when we do that, one of the things we realize is that there was an amazing usage of poetic language in the recording of scripture. By some estimates, over a third of the Bible is written written in some kind of poetic form, which is not the same thing as saying it's not true, right? There's there's no rule that says if something's written in kind of a poetic fashion that it's it's myth or it's not true. It's just a different way of describing things. Uh, the only thing that that recognition should do is make us like shy away a little bit from over-interpreting certain words so that we recognize that, that you know, there can be rich symbolism and literary uh, kind of literary language that we find so looking at genesis in that light one of the things that is you know one of the first things that we would see is things like the rich use of the number seven uh, not just in recording a number but in its symbolic representation of things that are, are perfect and looking at the you know of course the days of creation there's seven but looking at the initial declaration of Genesis 1-1, it makes use of, it does so in seven Hebrew words. The second declaration of being formless and void and God's spirit hovering over the waters is, is 14 Hebrew words, two times seven. And then we have all of these multiples of seven in the usage of uh, it was so, it was good, the firmament in heavens, the, the earth, uh, reference to God, that all of them occur in sets of seven. The final summary statement, Genesis 2, 1 through 3, is 35 words, which is five sets of seven. So just seeing that by itself 
immediately tells us that that there is there's rich symbolism that's in this text and that's probably not the only thing that we're going to find uh, when we look at the the structure of the days there is a, a remarkable parallel where we've got three days well actually i got to back up a second the before we get into the days we get this Hebrew expression of tohu vabohu. So we've got rhyming words that are translated as formless and empty or formless and void, and they rhyme. So we got this wordplay that sets up then three days of solving the formless problem where we have the creation of the realm of light and dark, the realm of sea and sky, the realm of land with plants. And then we have this parallel set of days where it's solving the, em the, the, the empty problem where we're filling the realm of light and dark with sun, moon, and stars. We're filling the realm of sea and sky with fish and birds, and we're filling the realm of land with animals and then humans. Uh, if we get into the structure of the repetition within each day, we see that there's this set of, you know, God said, let there be something, um, followed by, and there was. Eventually, we see God says it was good, and then there's evening and morning that ends a day. Well, we see that repeated in each of the days, but in day three, we get a duplicate set of those. So we get two sets of God said, let it was so God saw that it was good. And in day six, we get two uh, replicates of that. So it looks like you've got this structure that's very intentional where you've got our three days of solving the formless problem that end with day three, having this duplicate set of these expressions, and then the three parallel days of solving the empty problem that's also then ended with this uh, duplicate set of these expressions so that it's like the writers being very intentional about letting us know that these are in fact parallel days that they you know perhaps could also be interpreted as being sequential but they are so much more deep there's so much more there than just a sequence of days awesome awesome wonderful stuff so um so so i guess my question for you would be uh so you have all these, you know, this odd structure, we have this repetition. At what point do you get to from that to, okay, this is, this might've been read as a song. Uh, so that kind of gets back to, you know, how do we, how do we define a song? And we're not making a case that, you know, there was a melody and that it was sung kind of like we think of it as, as you know, going to church and singing uh, that there are cultures where, a poetic reading is thought of as something approaching a hymn or a song or a liturgy, uh, and that's that's really where we're what we're after here. More than you know, they you know there was there was a melody and there was a harmony. <laughs> that makes sense. Okay, and do we have any other passages in the Bible that are used in this way? Uh, so there's yes and no. Uh, it, yes, in the sense that there are many places in Scripture 
where stories are related, related in a poetic fashion and might even be called a song. So you get like the Song of Moses uh, after the, uh, the parting of the Red Sea and the Egyptian soldiers were overwhelmed. Uh, that's written as a song, rich in poetic language. You have the Song of Deborah that after, you know, in, ju in Judges when uh, Sisera and his army were defeated and Deborah sings a song that also it's recording actual history and commemorating actual history, but it's written in uh, with poetic language, saying things, even things like, you know, the, the stars joined in to the battle against Sisera. And you know, I don't know of any Hebrew scholars today that would try to argue that the actual stars came down and were making battle against Sisera. Um, but it's the idea that, you know, God and all of the, re the, the resources of, of nature are coming together to achieve this victory on behalf of Israel. Okay, yeah. And <clears throat> do you, I know there's been talk about uh, you have other creation texts from other cultures being used as some type of liturgy or, you know, in their temple. Um, and and Umilish was uh, recited yearly, uh, a lot of scholars think in their temple. Um, do you have any thoughts on that in regards to Genesis? Well, there's certainly strong evidence that it was read in the temple. Um, I mean, scripture itself, when they, the Israelites are being commanded on uh, you know, how, to, how to understand these texts that are being given to them, are told to read them in the temple uh, on at least an annual basis. And it, it, that one's interesting because when we talk about the idea of there being multiple overlapping layers, uh, that you, you also see this when we start talking about the covenant and the, the idea that, that it mimics the treaties, that the treaties were also in this time frame were documents that were provided and expected to be read with some repetition in the local temple. So you have some overlap in that sense too. Oh, no, that's interesting. Okay. All right. And uh, you, you briefly talked about it, but do you have like a final say on whether it's poetry or prose? Uh, do I have? Uh, yeah. uh, 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 well, I don't know that I would uh, claim to, to be able to, to, to dictate uh, you know, what, what it is and what it isn't. But if you're asking me my sense and, you know, based on uh, Hebrew scholars writing on the, on the subject and, you know, of course, lots of input from my co-author, the, the answer to the question of is it poetry or is it prose, the answer is yes. It is, it has elements of both. Uh, when people are discussing the appropriate genre of Genesis 1, there, a, a lot of ink has been spilt by some that in an effort to say that it is strictly a narrative prose will correctly note that there is no other place in scripture that looks exactly like the, uh, like Genesis 1. Uh, that they're, you know, what we think of as classical Hebrew poetry is not found replicated in Genesis 1. What is often left out 
is that there's no other place uh, in that replicates Genesis one as just narrative prose either. That there is a uniqueness to the style and to the genre of Genesis one that has elements of narrative prose and has elements of poetry. And I think one of the one of the strongest um, examples of the the poetic nature is that in Hebrew culture and Hebrew poetry, they they use a lot of parallelism. Now in classical Hebrew poetry, that parallelism tends to be fairly tight, and you'll see it like within a specific verse. Whereas in Genesis one, we definitely see that parallelism. I mean that that's you know the whole the whole structure of the days one through three and, and days four through six have obvious parallels to them. Um, but it's not as tight as you find in classical Hebrew poetry. So that has led many scholars to identify Genesis one as basically a unique genre where it's, you know, they use the Latin term sui gen generis, sui generis, which is a basically means it's it's a unique genre. Okay. So typically I'm um, from what I've seen at least is that, you know, we read the Bible, we almost categorize it in like, you know, four or five different genres. Yeah, poetic, prose, sometimes apocalyptic and all these other ones. But, you know, that as you said, you know, it's almost like you're saying that Genesis one is its own genre genre. But at the same time, like like how can you say like, oh, it's it's its own genre? Like why would this specific one be so different than all the other ones? Like right. How could, how can yeah, you like so, almost make up your own genre? Right. There's a good question. So and and you know, if if Ken Turner were joining us on this conversation, this would be the point where I would say, All right, Ken, take it away. Uh he's not here, so so I have to answer the question. Uh it, it's not about looking at it and imposing a, a, a an understanding on the text, right? We want the text to speak to us. And when we look at Genesis 1 and it doesn't, we don't find the style of narrative prose anywhere else in scripture. And we don't find the style of poetic language specifically in any other place in scripture. And yet it, it clearly has elements of narrative prose and it clearly has elements of poetry, particularly the, 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 the Hebrew um, use of, of parallelism. parallelism. Uh, so that leaves us with a understanding or recognition that this is a unique text that is not replicated anywhere else in scripture in terms of its genre. Uh, now, why would that be? We can only speculate, right? So my thoughts on it are that, you know, this could be a a result of you know this is a story that is the, the the first of all stories it likely was initially passed down through oral tradition and so by the time you get to moses who is then recording this story uh, he's not necessarily just replicating an oral tradition right he's 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 capturing the creation story for a people at that time that includes a lot of knowledge of all these pagan religions around them that then 
comes into play in the, the polemic layer where the creation story is not told in a vacuum, right? It's told with this understanding and coming out of Egypt and having been influenced by all of these pagan beliefs. So, but as a, you know, the first of all stories in this oral tradition, it's possible that some of those, some of the genre is, is preserved from those earlier times. So that's, but that's just speculation. You know, another possibility is that you know, there's just an intentional, uh, an intentional writing of the story in such a way that it does stand by itself and doesn't just match any other genre in the entire rest of the of the Bible. Yeah, I would, I would actually, um, you know, I've spoken up with a lot of well-educated people on this topic, and you know, there's, I've heard a lot of people say that this is a very very complicated uh fascinating like genesis one is almost nothing like it else in, in the ancient Near east like with all these different layers and you know you have the poetic elements but also these prose elements it's very fascinating um so you mentioned the the structure of um you know you have days one and three and then you have four and six but four to six but then uh you know i it, it seems like the you, you say that they parallel, but then if the luminaries of day four were placed in the heavens, you know, that's that's day two. And then fish from day five are placed in the seas of day three or the water made prior to day one. Like, it seems like it doesn't exactly fit perfectly. Can you help explain your view on that? Y yes. And so and, and this is a good place to point out that in the book, we end each one of the layers with uh, potential objections, uh, either objections that have been published by others for a particular understanding, or sometimes we've tried to anticipate what some of the objections might be. So this is one of those examples where people have published objections to this idea of the, the parallel structure, where they've argued that the sun, moon, and stars of day three are actually filling the realm of day two in the firmament, uh, not day one, and that the fish of day four are actually placed in water from day three, or maybe even the, the waters before day one, you know, the, the, the waters of the deep, uh, and try to discount the, the, the parallel structure. Um, I honestly don't know why people would go to such lengths to try to uh, undermine the beauty of this text, but uh, that said, the what's very helpful is if we actually pay attention to the Hebrew words that are found in the text, and rather than just think about things that are mentioned, to actually think about the purpose and what was the purpose of each of the days. Uh, that uh, table three in the book. Uh, breaks up the, the 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 six days with highlighting some of these Hebrew words and what the function or purpose was. So in day one, you know, we have the light separated from darkness, uh, and then in day four, where you have the sun, moon, and stars, they're not just dropped into something; that they have a a purpose. And day four explicitly says their purpose is to separate day from night. So you've got verse 
You've got day one saying light and dark to separate day and night, light from dark. You've got day four that's repeating that phrase. So you, you definitely have a parallelism there. Uh, you move into the days two and five. And it's interesting that there's two different words in Hebrew for uh, waters and sea. The, the, it's not the same word that's that's just repeated. And I, I may not be pronouncing the Hebrew exactly right, but you have ma'im, translated as waters, and yamim, translated as sea. And when you're looking at the word choice in day two, when it's separating the waters above from the waters below, the waters below is that ma'im. You look at day five, when the fish are created, they are not put in yamim, they are put in ma'im. So it's the same Hebrew word that's used back in day two that gives us this, this clear connection that the fish are being created to solve the, the empty sea problem, right? We, we had day two creating the realms of sea and sky. Uh, you have day five then filling the sea and sky with fish and birds. And that same word, ma'im, is used in both. Uh, and then when you get down to days three and six, that's where you see the Hebrew word yamim in both day three and day six that makes it clearer that that there's that parallel is also supported. So when you start drilling down to the, the usage of the Hebrew words and what the function was for each of these days, that parallelism is actually very, very strong. Great, yeah. Um, and so I just wanted to summarize all you said and maybe add a little bit that you you mentioned in the book. Um, so, so you have the sevens, you have a whole bunch of different sevens in the text. You have the parallel structure of one to three and four and six. You have tohu wabuhu, those rhyming words at the very beginning. You have repeating patterns of phrases all throughout. You have an opening and closing stanza they're, as they're paralleled at the, the beginning and the end. As well as you have, you know, God, God did or God said, you have 31 times, which, you know, it's just not expected in some type of prose as, you know, typically it'd be something like, you know, Abraham said, and then, then he did it, or then he did it. Like, it, it's just weird verbiage and nouns used there. So, yeah, and, and I'll yeah. leave you with a teaser that, uh, that when you're looking at the repetition of phrases in each of the days, that there is this apparent oddity in days two and five, where in each one of those, a phrase is left out. And it turns out to be very intentional and built around the, where the writer wanted to use the word good, where he uses it seven times. And rather than just dropping it into one, you know, one place in each of the seven days, he like ends day three with two uses of the word good. He ends day six with two uses of the word good, which means he has to leave it out of one of the other days. And you can read the book and look at the table to see how fascinating and obviously intentional that structure is. Yeah, no, it's 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 actually pretty crazy. Okay, so on to our next one, um, the covenant layer. Can you give us, uh, you know, your argument for why you'd see that Genesis one and two are were seen as some type of covenant? Yeah, so we tend to think when we're reading the Bible and we see covenant that that's something that's that's unique to the Bible. Um, 
But the idea of a covenant is something that was well understood uh, to the people of, of the time because of the parallels with a the, the, the treaties of the time. And particularly if you look at some of the Hittite uh, uh, treaties, and, and there is some debate among scholars as to like, which culture best matches the the biblical structures but ken and i felt like that the, the hittite uh treaties had the, the the best parallels where the idea behind a treaty was not just a contract right? it wasn't just a a, a legally binding uh, agreement it was something more than that right it was something that was creating a a legal relationship that did not exist before. Uh, Sandra Richter, Old Testament scholar um, out of Westmont, uh, describes it as as creating kin from among people that were not kin, right? So it's it's establishing sort of this familial relationship that did not exist before. And in those Hittite treaties, there was a structure that uh, that they all followed a you know would start with the title and identity of the, the the ruler that was known as the suzerain so these were these were suzerain vassal treaties right suzerain is the the king or the emperor uh vassal is the subjugated people or the the servant group so you've got the title and identity of the suzerain you've got a historical prologue that lauds the accomplishments of the suzerain and what had been done for the vassal. Uh, there were stipulations, you know, expectations of the vassal. There was the placement and reading that we mentioned earlier, uh, where this treaty would be put into a temple and it was required to be read with some regularity. Witnesses were called. Uh, often a pantheon of gods was called upon as witness of this, uh, this treaty. And it would often end with curses and blessings, where it's identifying the penalties for betrayal and the benefits for faithfulness. Now, what's interesting is that a lot of these would then also be accompanied by a land grant treaty, where you know, if the vassal is faithful and you know, doesn't go off and try to arrange any other of these kinds of treaties, uh, they're faithful to the singular suzerain, that the suzerain will grant land to the vassal in order to take care of it on behalf of the suzerain, but also to enjoy the produce of that land with the understanding that as, as long as they are faithful, they will experience the protection of the, the, the suzerain. So when we look at then the structure of the covenants that are in the Bible, they often follow that same pattern. So especially when we're looking at Mount Sinai uh, and when the covenant is established with Israel, but also if you go back with Abraham, go back to Noah, we see some of these elements repeated where, uh, you know, even in like the giving of the, the, the Ten Commandments that are coming down off Mount Sinai, that you've got God identifies himself as the suzerain, uh, their prologue, the... Uh, you know, he describes what he has done for Israel. He promises that they will, uh, he gives them commands to fill the land. 
at the time, there's no temple yet on Mount Sinai, but there's a promise of that temple that will be built, that he will dwell in. All creation is is identified as as witness, and they're described. There's also the, the the penalties that are described for disobedience. So if you go back and look at the creation story, the word covenant is never used, but you've got a lot of that same structure, right? I mean, the very first verse of Genesis one identifies the suzerain, identifies God. The prologue, he created the heavens and the earth. He gives a very similar command to reproduce, to fill the earth, to tend and take care of uh, the garden. Uh, there's uh, no temple mentioned, but you know we've got a whole another layer that makes an argument that Eden is a temple, and that there's amazing parallels there. And there's repercussions that are spelled out that if they do not obey, they're going to experience death. Now. There are some scholars that will make an issue with the fact that the word covenant is not used in the story. But you have other places in scripture where you also see a covenant that's established without necessarily using the word covenant. Uh, one of the best examples is, is the covenant that was established with David, King David, that in all of the interactions we read between God and, and David, the word covenant's not used, and yet you'll go to, to places like Jeremiah, where the prophet will make reference to God's eternal covenant made with David. Awesome. Yeah. No, and I don't know if you mentioned this, but you know, we have covenants all over the specifically the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible. You have Mosaic, Abrahamic, Noah, David. I guess David's out of there, but um, no, it's very fascinating. So talked yeah, about and yeah. Yeah, and one of the things that's important to mention is that when you start talking about things like similarities with something from the surrounding lands, right? There are some people that are, you know, the skeptics that will say, ah, yeah, that's just an example of them borrowing the things from the dominant culture and appropriating them for their own purposes, <clears throat> as opposed to it being something inspired. And oftentimes, the the Christians will respond kind of as a knee-jerk reaction to that by trying to explain, no, 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 this, this is completely different. That this is not just borrowing from, from the surrounding lands uh, or cultures. But, but there's actually a much more, I think, reasoned position that this isn't borrowing or appropriating from the surrounding lands. This is... God making use of common understanding of the people of the time in order to illustrate these eternal truths about the kingdom of God and his relationship with his people. So it's not borrowing. It's simply making use of common shared experience. Yeah, no, that's very true. I'd, I'd actually wanted to ask you about this. What would you say is the impact for us as a reader? Like, what would this mean to us? besides some just like, you know, random nerdy fact. I mean, obviously you, you talked about how like, this is, is an example of how the ancient Israelite, what, or I guess the nation of Israel in general, were thinking in terms of um, just what their culture was in that time period. But what else would you, just comes to mind when, you, uh, when I ask you about that? Uh, well, it's, it's emphasizing 
that this kind of gets back to the definition of a covenant, that it's not just a contract, right? This isn't something where we, we enter into this agreement with God and, you know, if we do the things we're supposed to, we get, you know, our ticket to heaven punched. But this is, is codifying a relationship. So you can think of it in terms of like a, an adoption or in a marriage where you're taking somebody that is not biologically kin and you are making them into kin, into there's this, this relationship that goes way, way deeper than just a contractual arrangement. And that's encapsulated in this idea of this, these parallels with these treaties that, you know, it's not just the, the, the conquering king coming in and saying, all right, all you peons now, you know, must kneel and serve me, that there's a relationship established where if, if you, uh, if there is fidelity, if there is faithfulness, they become essentially part of this family and with tremendous benefits. Yeah, and of course, in earthly treaties with earthly kings, that they're not always faithful themselves to the spirit of the treaty. And, you know, we have human sin and corruption and ugliness that enters that. But the idea of the, the, the scriptural covenant that God is the ideal suzerain that you know is is not uh, you know is himself faithful to uh, he's faithful to provide all of those promised blessings for faithfulness and we can count on him that he's going to be he's going to come through with the curses if we are not faithful can you talk more about like how the covenant fits into how the, the land is affected. Is it because the the curses that come with the covenant with God and that those are later um, where the, the curses come in, you talk about land and all that other stuff. Yeah, so the so the covenant language is most of it is is we, we read about is with uh, people and with the nation of Israel and the there's a very clear pattern where that covenant is broken and they lose the the right to the land grant right they experience the exile because of that broken covenant uh but then almost like inside of that there's these little surprises where in the noetic covenant and in the description of the creation story there's also this language of a covenant relationship that God establishes with the his natural creation, which is almost like saying that, hey, th this isn't just a afterthought. This isn't something that, oh yeah, yeah, in order for humans to exist, I need all this this stuff there for them to live in. It's almost a statement of this is something that I made and I value it and I love it and i want you to take care of it and if you choose not to not only will it suffer but you will experience negative repercussions from that failure to tend the garden 
Yeah, that's wonderful. Last question. Um, so if this this gives more detail of how the curses would have been seen, you know, talking about the cursing of the land and all that kind of stuff, what would you say, does that change our interpretation of the other other curses in Genesis 3, I believe it is? Uh, what, are, what other ones are you thinking of? Uh, well, there's like, well, actually, no, it's the snake that's cursed and it's the land that's cursed. Oh, oh yes. Uh, so there, yeah, so there's a, there's a cursing of, like you said, the snake. There is a cursing of the, the people in terms of uh, death and, you know, childbearing and by the sweat of their brow, which that's, that's a whole nother interesting thing because it's that by the sweat of the brow is not the, the, the accurate translation of that is not just, Oh, now you're going to sweat when you work. It's more a reference to unproductive labor hmm. that instead of working and seeing the rich results of your, your labor, that you're going to start experiencing futility in your, your labor. Uh, and then you've also got this cursing of the ground. So that's the place where, you know, a lot of, of modern Western Christians will go to and say, there it is. There's the, there's the statement that nature itself has been corrupted now. And yet using scripture to understand scripture, when we go to Deuteronomy and we see similar language that things in nature are cursed, it's not that they warp into some diabolical form. It's simply that man's interaction with nature has now been corrupted, is now something that is, is negative. So what we see in Genesis is not necessarily a corruption of nature. It's a now you're going to – you're not going to just look at nature and be in awe of it. You're going to look at nature and be in fear of some of the things because you are no longer protected from some of the negative consequences. So just like you know, we mentioned twice now that the, the lion and the, the deer or the lamb, right? Seeing a lion go after a deer on the slope may be awe-inspiring. Seeing that same lion coming into my herds and taking out some of my flock, completely different experience. So one of the one of the things that I've uh, examples I've used to try to illustrate that in in more of a modern sense is if we go to the zoo and you go to the tiger exhibit and you're sitting 18 inches from this tiger walking by your first thought is not oh look at the corruption of sin look at how ugly how horrible I mean most people are just in awe of the majesty and the way this thing is is so ideally suited to its niche and its environment and it it it's it proclaims the glory of god i don't feel fear i don't feel anxiety why is that it's because about four inches of solid glass are between me and that tiger if all you do is pull that glass away all of a sudden, my perspective of that tiger completely changes. And I'm now no longer thinking of in awe of its majesty. I am in fear for my life. Uh, that kind of gets at the idea of 
the difference between nature being uh, uh, behaving as nature does, and I, I look at it with awe versus nature doing what it does, and I'm in fear of it. There's fascinating language in both the, the Noetic covenant and in the description of creation where God does not just make a covenant with human beings. He makes a covenant with nature itself. And you see that mentioned in like Jeremiah, where in order to emphasize the immutability of his covenant with David, he draws on, God draws on an absolute that says, if you can change and invalidate my covenant with day and with night, then you can invalidate my covenant with, with David. So he's going all the way back to the beginning, creation of day and night, and saying that was a, a covenant that you cannot violate. Well, all right, so that then makes us wonder about, okay, what is what happened when man sinned? And, you know, there, there, there's two options. They're both potentially biblically defensible, right? One is that sin brought consequences and, and corruption to humans, right, including our, our death, uh, that did not spill out over into all of nature, that nature just, nature kept moving and, and existing as it always had. A second is that, yes, our, our man's sin corrupted the entire entire universe uh genesis is not explicit about which one of those is is the correct understanding so we have to start looking at other places in scripture to make that assessment and people will often immediately go to romans about um you know where it talks about that the you know, creation groans awaiting for its its redemption uh and and in a vacuum, in isolation, that does make it sound like nature was corrupted by man's sin. Uh, though even there, that wording is not, it does not declare that man's sin created that condition. That, you know, one very equally valid interpretation is that the creation groans under man's sin upon it. Right, so when we uh, deforest a, a land, when we dump toxins and pollutants into the water, uh, when we rape the land, essentially, that the creation is groaning under man's sin, not that nature itself has has been corrupted. So again, you've got two possible interpretations of, of that. We have to start looking at other places to understand whether God's covenant with nature was you know, broken by man's sin or it remains in effect. And if you start reading scripture with that as a question in mind, as opposed to, I already made up my mind what the answer is, I'm just going to look for, for proof texts, it is remarkable the number of places in scripture where when you read about God's description of creation as it is now, it is in glowing terms. Uh, I mean, I, I, you read the last three chapters of Job, where God's describing nature 
and the frolicking of the beasts. And it's all in these glowing terms. You read in Romans 1 that the the heavens, uh, sorry, that the, where it says, since the beginning, God's character and um, attributes have been, are, are manifest in the creation, in what has been made. It doesn't say it used to be before sin. It says it does now and has since the very creation. Uh, you read Psalms 104, which most Hebrew scholars describe as a creation psalm. And, and it speaks of God even doing things like feeding predators their prey, and they are satisfied with good. And it is the same Hebrew word that's used in the creation account when God says that the original creation is good. Uh, the heavens don't declare the corruption of sin. The heavens declare the glory of God. So we're seeing repeatedly all through scripture that everywhere that God describes the current creation, it is in terms that we would think of as, as an unfallen creation. Um, and if I then start to think about this sort of um, uh, theologically, that if you imagine the earth, the, the universe initially being created as this something that is perfect and it is created such that the mere action of one person doing one thing ruins it all how how perfect of a creation was that something that is that was that easily totally corrupted and only existed in that state for a, a briefest moment in time. It's like, I think God was a better creator than that. <laughs> uh, but again, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna qualify all of that, that you know, if somebody listens to this part of the conversation and says, eh, you know, this, this doesn't fit with any of the things I've ever heard preached from the, the, the you know, Sunday, I don't know about, about all of this. Even though I think it's an accurate understanding of Scripture and, and fits amazingly well with this covenant understanding, um, you know, the, the, the idea of a covenant, uh, the idea of the creation account, including a covenant layer, is not dependent on also accepting that, that, that part of the conversation. Yeah, so... Um few questions so couldn't someone say that uh you know uh, i can't remember what verse you you quoted but uh when it talks about day and night never changing couldn't someone say that okay you know that's referring to day and night but you know maybe the curse wasn't on day and night it was the curse was on like the land and that's what's really um you know started all this decay and all that kind of stuff uh i mean you one could say that, but it's it's reading into scripture what's not recorded, right? It's it's um, it's make requires making a set of assumptions about what scripture is addressing and what it's not. Um, a, another um, when when scripture talks about the 
function of of nature and you know it's interesting to me that even in some of the you know the apologetics on the intersection of science and, and christian faith that those that that argue very strongly for a corruption of nature uh, as soon as adam and eve sinned that they'll shift over to all of these discussions of how wonderfully something is made and how obviously that there was a creator because this this works so efficiently and it's so well designed and it's and i want to stop and say well, well but wait it isn't nature horribly corrupted and isn't it just reflecting the horrors of of sin but you're saying it's reflecting this incredible design and beauty that would have been reflected from the very start so there's to me there's an inconsistency in the those arguments that are made yeah i think so then also worth mentioning is that the you you talked about how the like you know how great of a creation is it really if you know as soon as god creates it's like it's basically you know corrupted essentially um yeah, you, I mean, a, a, sort of a, a word picture. Yeah. You know, if you can imagine the earth that's created as this utopia and it's intentionally set on a, on a knife blade where the merest puff will cause it to tip off and be destroyed. Yeah, it, what kind of a creation is that? How, how perfect was that to create this this world that's sitting on this knife edge um humans obviously and very clearly in scripture uh experience the decay of sin and it's interesting even when it's talking about the concept of death that when romans 5 talks about the consequences of sin you know bringing death to all men that it's interesting that you know if we take scripture seriously and you know, every word in scripture seriously, it says that sin brought death to all men, to humans. If the intention of that was that it just brought death to everything, then those those last words shouldn't shouldn't be there. It just the consequences of sin brought death, period. But it's very specific, brought death to all men. And of course that means mankind, like humans, not just not just males. Yeah, you came really prepared for this argument. Dang. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, man. just so one more thought on that. Okay. The, yeah. The, the, so the Eden had boundaries. If the entire planet was this utopia, then there was no point to being to there being a, a perimeter, a boundary to Eden, and when they're cast out of the garden like if all of nature is suddenly corrupted then inside the garden's corrupted just as much as outside there's there's no reason to for exile so one of the 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 ways that theologians will go with this then or an understanding is that that in the garden mankind is protected from negative interactions with the environment 
right? So a, you know, a lion eating a, a deer, no big deal. A lion eating a lamb from the flock, big deal. Uh, weeds growing out in the meadow might actually be beautiful. Weeds growing in my garden, that becomes a problem with, with you know, where am I to get my lunch from? So one of the ways of, of teasing that out, you know, when we talk about using scripture to understand scripture, uh, C. John Collins uh, at a Covenant Theological Seminary wrote some wonderful material on this subject where he's looking at Deuteronomy and looking at passages that, that have the blessings and the curses. And one of the curses was if Israel was disobedient, then they would uh, experience, uh, you know, curses on their, their kneading bowls and on their crops and on their flocks. And we know that they did sin. We know that they did experience these curses. And we note that those curses were on the, 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 the earth, right? It was on flocks. It was on crops. It was on kneading bowls. And yet nobody thinks that when Israel sinned, that goats started giving birth to kids with fangs or that wheat started to grow with thorns or that their kneading bowls physically morphed into something odd. So what, what did happen? Well, what happened was that their experience with nature became negative. So just like we mentioned a minute ago, you know, the lion eating the deer in the, in the, the forest, not a problem. Lion coming in and eating from the flocks, that's a big problem. So if we take scripture to understand scripture and go back to Eden and understand that Eden has boundaries and noting that everywhere in scripture that nature is described, it's, it's described in glowing terms. It's described as, as declaring the glory of God, not the corruption of sin. Uh, we, we do that. We take care of de demonstrating the corruption of sin very, very well. Uh, you can see that inside the garden, they're protected from negative interactions with nature. Uh, as soon as they're cast out, they are now no longer under that protection. Nature's behaving the way nature always does, has from the beginning, but now they are experiencing negative interactions with that natural phenomenon. Yeah, you could even think of it in terms like a volcanic eruption, that the ash that is spilled out from a volcanic eruption is loaded with nutrients. And as that blankets the landscape, it lays down um, a, a, a strata that begins a process that will make it a very rich, fertile, and productive landscape for a whole new ecosystem to develop. You watch one of these happen, and you know, you're know you reminded of Job, where it says he touches the mountains and they smoke. Right, this is God just demonstrating His glory. But now, if I've got a vineyard that's sitting on the slope of that, and it erupts, and I lose my my livelihood, I lose my family members, my home. It's not that that eruption was somehow this evil thing, but my exposure, my interaction with it, has become something negative. Nice, nice. 
Okay, so let's get into the emphasis on land that you talked about in the book. Uh, can you give us your argument for why Genesis 1 might be uh, putting an emphasis on land? And before you talk about that, I just want to mention that I actually did a video on uh, Seth Postel's uh, uh, dissertation on Adam as Israel. It's like the only one on YouTube and like really going to that. So like this is going to be really fun for me uh, to like discuss this topic because it's a super weird like thing you'd never hear before. So go ahead and go into yeah, it. Yeah, and it, and it's it's probably one of the 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 harder ones to encapsulate in in short in a, a, a in dialogue like this. You, you almost have to just say, go read it. <laughs> but uh, to try to encapsulate it, that you know we mentioned at the start that it's not just saying that there are parallels between Eden and Canaan. Uh, there are many things that we do find that are paralleling uh, similarities between Eden and Canaan, uh, but it's it's really more important that it's Adam's story is Israel's story is our story. So, it, it, kind of a, the, the the details of that uh, in Eden and Canaan, you've got a land prepared for habitation. Right? that they didn't have to go in and start from scratch. A land is provided for them, sort of like getting back to that suzerain vassal and, and land grant, uh, that that land is, is provided for them, it's prepared for habitation. In both Eden and Canaan, they're commanded to exert dominion, uh, but not in a abusive sense, but in as a caretaker, that they are supposed to go in, take possession and bring order out of disorder. Uh, in both cases, there's warnings against disobedience. Uh, both have symbols of idolatry. In Eden, you've got a snake that is this symbol of, of idolatry, of serving a, a master that's not the creator God. And in the land of Canaan, the Canaanites themselves often serve, and, and their idols serve as these symbols of idolatry and the tendency to drift in, in worship away from the creator to um, things that are not God. You've got, actually, there's some Sabbaths and festivals that we see, you know, of course, in Canaan, and but you also see it in microcosm in Eden and in the creation story. And the, the, the calendar layer actually gets into a little bit more detail on that, where, you know, even the description of the sun, moon, and stars is not just about separating out days and weeks and months uh, and seasons, but also sets the stage for the festivals and their specific wording towards that end. Uh, there is fear of God's presence in both Eden and Canaan when there's disobedience. There's exile, right? When they, when Adam and Eve uh, disobey. They are cast out of the garden. In Canaan, after generational disobedience, they experience exile and cast out of the land. Uh, there are there's parallels between even things like the sword. So a flaming sword is placed at the entrance of the Garden of Eden to keep them out. Uh, in Canaan, you've got some examples of basically being kept out of Canaan by the power of the sword. And critically, they are not left in that state. 
right? The love of God and mercy of God is made manifest that even in the midst of exile, they are cared for and they are offered restitution. There's, there are ways to be restored back into the kingdom of God, to become part of the, the, the family of God again. And so we see that. Um, so you don't see it so much in the idea of them coming back into Eden. Uh, it's more that they are being faithful to God in this new land where they find themselves. Uh, whereas in Canaan, you actually have a, a sense of returning back to the, the same place and experiencing restoration. So we see that Adam's story is Israel's story is our story where it's not just here's what happens if you mess up it's more of a story of here's what happens when you mess up because you are going to and but you're not you're not all is not lost because we have a god who believes in mercy and restoration if one simply has a heart to return to to the creator yeah wonderfully said now uh so this might kind of get to the purpose of this um would you consider this was like you know when it was originally written was this was this written at, when genesis was written was this written as some type of metaphor to to describe uh what is to come like prophetic almost or some type of some people have said it's like kind of archetypal or some people have said or like maybe you know there's some people that think that genesis 1 was written way after you know you know all the the egyptian exodus stuff and in the land and you know when when uh the israelites are in babylon in exile um like what do you think about like how exactly this was written and all that yeah so so there's 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 two there's two answers to that that are addressing different aspects of the question. Uh, the the one that I want to start with addresses the question of uh, inspiration and truth. That as soon as you start asking questions about you know when was it written was it was it ever edited was it uh, then red flags start flying for some people about oh, oh are you just saying that this is basically a human document that was intended to assist the nation of Israel in defining themselves. Uh, I, I do think that the Bible is inspired and that it is communicating the truth that God has intended to communicate to us. Uh, that does not mean that when something was initially recorded, that that was it, right? Because God could be using the process of initial writing and editing as part of the inspiration such that the document that ends up being what, you know, Israel uh, uh, um, becomes part of the canon at that point is this inspired truthful text. So certainly we know that the time of writing, initial writing of the Genesis account is is Moses right? I mean, the, the whole Pentateuch is at least initially being drafted by Moses. So long after the the events have occurred in primeval history, uh, and then 
after this point, you've got some degree of editing that everybody acknowledges, right? For example, when when you read in uh, uh, Exodus that it's talking about the death of Moses, clearly Moses did not write that. Uh, you know, that's somebody that's coming on and, and adding that into, into that story. Uh, we also see things like the, the Hebrew scholars will tell us that the, the style of, of writing is post-exile. And that doesn't mean that things were radically changed. You know, that you can think of it as like King James English and modern English, right? It's the same Bible. We're simply updating the language to reflect how people speak now. And so you see that that's in the text. Uh, and then there's discussion about whether some additional information is included in the Pentateuch uh, that reflects post-exile observations. Um, I, don't, I don't really have a dog in that fight. Uh, I simply note that it's, it's, a, it's an active discussion among Bible-believing Old Testament scholars. All right, this is just a super complicated. Um, yes. Uh, I'm going to cut this out, but uh, reading Seth Postel's work, this is one of the first ones I read, his dissertation, and like that thing is deep and dense and all kinds of Hebrew. And <laughs> yeah, and, and that's it's also a good example of uh, where Ken and I used the, the work of Postel. Um, and, and others that were writing on that subject in order to present this layer, but weren't necessarily trying to go deep to describe or defend every aspect or nuance of the position that they described. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, yeah, for just, just as, as one example, um, yeah. in, in their writing, they will often try to make the case that that Eden and Canaan were geographically the some the same place. Mm. That's possible, but I don't think is an essential aspect to uh, this understanding of Adam as Israel. Adam's story is is Israel's story is our story. Um, you know the the parallels between Eden and Canaan. You know whether they were intended to be physically identical or just conceptually similar, you, you get the same message from it. Yeah. So would you say that you get the, the from when, when you see all these different uh, things in common, and just to even mention that, sure, like, you know, we've talked about this list, but there's, it goes way deeper than that, I would say, like, um, and and not you guys don't even specifically talk about Seth Bostel's view on this, but um, like you know, I think he takes almost a different approach in some ways because like he goes a whole route, another route, which add additional things into it, but it also adds additional complexities. And it's like, well, you know, I don't know if exactly we want to go there. That's kind of weird, but yeah. Well, um, and and hopefully, you know, so the uh, you know, I we were very intentional. Notice how thick that is. Right, that was not an accident. Uh, we were writing this with the idea of making it very accessible and providing sufficient information, not exhaustive information. 
so that if somebody really got intrigued by one of these layers, you know, there's tons of footnotes and there's tons of references, bibliography in the back where you can you can do a deep dive. Uh, in fact, we early on we had one reviewer that uh, he, he was kind enough that he sent me the review before he published it, and it was generally positive, but it had one critique in there that you know we we'd left out you know some some important names in the conversation, and and I replied with that well yes we did we and we knew we did because the idea was not an exhaustive treatise it was sufficient information to communicate the richness of the of the story uh, provide sufficient documentation to know that we're not just you know we're, this is not something we're just inventing right these are these are things that um, bible believing scholars have have proposed and described and then you know if you if you something strikes your fancy and you're intrigued by it then dive deep so i guess one question is like what what would be the purpose of you know whether it's you know dictated by god or written by you know just like moses is just thinking and you know prophetically or even you know a writer in the exile what, what would be the whole purpose of having these similarities here uh, of having what kind of similarities are you thinking of? Uh, just between Adam and Israel and, you know, oh, the locations. Oh, oh, oh. Well, I, I think, you know, regardless of whether it was, you know, the first time it was written down, it was just inspired that way as it was, or whether, you know, that inspiration was a result of, you know, some subsequent edits. In, in either case, I think that there was definitely intentionality in, you know, by God, in describing the first human couple uh, in the garden as a story that was going to encapsulate human history, that the things that Adam and Eve experienced were things that Israel was going to experience, are things that we are going to experience, um, that both helps us in the sense of not being caught by surprise but perhaps more importantly of not despairing right because we we make all of the same kinds of mistakes that the first couple did and that israel did and and experiencing sometimes very painful consequences and all is not lost that this is a god who redeems and you see that in the creation story you see it repeated uh, throughout the Pentateuch and the entire, the entire, the entire Bible. Yeah. So um, one question I have for you is that, um, you know, when we're looking in the Bible for these these different similarities, or sometimes not even looking on purpose, it's just like, wow, that stands out. That's weird. They both have the same thing. That's a hmm. Um, now sometimes it's a lot more obvious if it specifically says, hey, you know, something like Adam is Israel or something like that. Um, right. And it's a lot of times in the Old New Testament, people like Paul do that. But um, in regards to like when we're looking at these things, like uh, how do we how do we look at it and not um, not just like see what we want to see in there? Like how do we how do we figure out like oh this is what the writer was really intending? Um, just for an example for you, so like there's a lot of um, Old Testament scholars um, or you know a lot of atheists that are kind of like trying to make these similarities or parallels from like Moses to 
um, Sargon um, and you know all these other di different texts. And it's like, oh, Moses didn't exist because there's similarities here. Well, it's like, well, just because there's similarities doesn't mean that they're the same exact person. Like, like, come on. Right. But at the same time, how do you how do you differentiate? Like, how do you know when it's on purpose, and how do you know that it's just a coincidence? Uh, yeah, that's where you, you go into this deep trance and you ask God's spirit to just reveal. Yeah, no. Um, that, that's a very good question that does not have a, a necessarily a simple answer uh, because it involves a lot of, of study and it involves a, a, a willingness to be open to the spirit of God moving. Right, we, we we don't understand really anything in Scripture without God's Spirit at work, right? Um, so one of the things that we we look for when we're trying to sort out uh, something that may be truthful versus something that's fanciful is, you know, is a proposed or described understanding consistent with the overall narrative of scripture, right? So if somebody comes up with some wild idea that maybe they've, they, they've got a bunch of verses and, and archaeology that they can start pulling on, but it just doesn't make sense with or jive with the, the overall theme and, and narrative of, the, of the, the Bible, that's a pretty good indication that that's probably not a valid understanding. Uh, so that would be one one thing that we would look for. Uh, in terms of the more specific question about when people start saying, you know, that this just all this is just borrowed. It's just appropriated from the surrounding nations. We already talked a little bit about that, uh, where you know the, the the two options of it's either all borrowed or no, it's all unique. Neither one of those are really defensible arguments. The much more logical, reasonable argument would be that the shared experiences are being tapped into in order to communicate these eternal truths about the creator and about his relationship with his people. So when we have that understanding and it, it sort of frees us up from, from being too worried about th that if there's similarities that somehow that makes the Bible less true, it's like, no, these are, these are shared experiences that are being tapped into, whether it's the cup, the, the treaty, uh, structure that is used in order to to describe the covenants, whether it's the 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 common understanding of a what a temple means and for a god to be uh, to rest in his temple, that some of that same language is used so that the people of Israel could understand it. Um, you know, it's not appropriating; it's using the terminology of shared experience. Um, we could talk a lot longer on that that subject. I think that's probably sufficient for now. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. And it really gets into your methodology of like you know how you read the Bible and all that kind of stuff. Um, one thing I wanted to add was just the sheer, the the sheer number of similarities. It's like okay, so if we have two or three, like, mm, but when you have get into like you know fifteen different similarities, it's like okay, is this just a coincidence? How is that even possible? Yeah, well, and you mentioned like the Enuma Elish and or the, you know, if we talk about like the Gilgamesh epic that, you know, for some people, when they would read this Mesopotamian flood story, it, it immediately creates this um, 
you know, sense of, oh, no, the Bible may not be true after all because it's just a variation of this, you know, story that, that uh, maybe predates it. And we forget that, wait a minute, if, if there was a catastrophic event, you know, whether it was, you know, global or, you know, covered the entire region, you know, the, the, the known population, uh, that's something that's going to make an imprint on all of the cultures and they're all going to have a story. So for there to be, for there not to be similarities would be far more odd and strange than for there to be similarities in those stories. And, and another thing that I often will point out too is just because a document is discovered that is older than another document doesn't mean that the story itself is older. Right. It just means that the oldest material that we have in our hands has a particular date that may come before or after another one. Um, so I, I, I never get worked up over, you know, the, the age of like, say, a Gilgamesh epic manuscript, you know, clay tablet versus, you know, the oldest extant uh, Old Testament uh, scroll. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. Um... And one more thing is, you know, I mean, I did a video on it, so I've got a lot to say about it. But um, the when when writers like so when you say uh, you have like Genesis one uses in Genesis two three use the same language as you know Exodus and um, when the Israelites are going into the land uh, when you talk about like I mean I don't know if you guys get into this but like the similarity between day three of Genesis, uh, Genesis one. And then, uh, when the Israelites are, you know, the Red Sea, the crossing, and God, the uh, God moves the water out of the way. It's like, and the, the dry land appears. It's like, it sounds exactly like Genesis one. Now, a lot of people say like, Oh, it's this imagery of like how they would have seen the world. And that's what they're describing. But, um, I mean, yeah. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. So the, 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 kind of relates to a different question that, that will get asked of, you know, why seven, why, and, and, you know, might there be other layers? And we, we really liked the number seven for obvious reasons. Um, and, and we did in fact identify seven that we felt were very defensible and, and that we thought fit to fit together. Well, they, they were complementary. Uh, but that's not saying that that's, that all of those have to be legitimate or that there that's all there is and in fact after publishing this book uh, i became aware of some of these comparisons with the exodus and parallels with genesis 1 the creation story and you know i mean there, it's possible that that could be yet another layer uh by chance uh who well, who'd, who'd you read up on that one i might look into that um so yeah it it um third third mill ministries uh the, the name is escaping me at the moment um, oh my gosh greg come on yeah that's that's something i might have to look up and and like send you an email and then you can like stick a little line underneath it. In the video. <laughs> okay. This is this is the name he was trying to remember, but I think there it's it's go. it's Third Mill Ministries. Okay. It's, it's it's that group. Um, okay. Yeah, I'll yeah. look that up. Um, the Carmen Joy 
Carmen Joy, is that Carmen Imes, whatever her middle name is. Uh, she did a little article inside of a, a big collection of articles. Um, and hers was how Genesis 1 and I guess the creation of Israel as they're coming out of Exodus, like there's all kinds of Genesis uh, language used in Exodus. And like she China tries to make it seem like uh, it's a creation, kind of like a John Walton view of functional origins, mm-hmm. but with Israel assigned to Exodus. Um, I found that recently too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, and, and speaking of John Walton, so the, the temple layer draws yeah. pretty heavily on, yep. on John Walton's work. And that's also a good example of, you know, when we talk about a layer is inspired by someone or we mind their work for description without necessarily fully encapsulating that that particular view. Uh, you know, I, I love a lot of the stuff that John Walton has provided us and the the temple layer we describe benefits immensely from from his work. Uh, at the same time, we didn't really feel like kind of the function only argument that he makes was as defensible that you know we saw that the felt like say days one through three were about function uh, creating the realms in which things will reside solving the formless problem but then days four through six are all about the stuff right that's the things that is solving the empty problem that go into those realms uh, so yes yeah, so we we didn't didn't uh, make a case for his function only arguments. Yeah, no, I mean, I don't know if you noticed, but I just had him on. Uh, so that's also been right in my mind there. Yeah, and I, um, I, I, I love John. So, and, and yeah, he actually, he gave us, uh, it was kind enough to be one of the people that had provided an endorsement uh, in the front of our book. Cool. Yeah. He didn't say, uh, you didn't include me in there. Yeah, well, yeah, he couldn't say that because his name's his name appears in a number of the footnotes and <laughs> and several of his works in the bibliography. <laughs> okay, okay, sorry. Let me clarify. You couldn't include my uh, non-material origins view in there. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, lower one star. Just kidding. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, let me see. Okay, so so. Um, so we see in Genesis one, there's this language of tohu uh translated as, um, you know, formless, alike, formless and waste. But um, in other parts of the Bible, like Jeremiah four, it's it's referring to land. Like, uh, do you almost see this like dual meaning in Genesis one as a possibility, or what do you think's going on? Yeah, yeah. So, so some people have noted that you know that where you see it joined together tohu wabohu the the formless and empty that in jeremiah sometimes that will be translated as something that's more akin to barren and uh, a, a wasteland and you know, some people argue that those are are different and i don't think they they really are they're, they're kind of getting at the same thing because in Jeremiah, when it's talking about the land becoming tohu wabohu, it's being denuded of the things that are supposed to be there. And even the very functionality of the land is, is being decimated, uh, turning into to, you know, desert wasteland as a result of 
humanity's sin and God's judgment. So when you read Jeremiah 4, it's almost like a an undoing of the creation narrative. That as a consequence of sin, you're seeing a return to disorder, a return to emptiness. So that those are, they're, they're not necessarily different things. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so, so we mentioned Seth Postel a bunch. Um, he kind of takes a, a different approach to than kind of what you talked about in the book. When he sees all these similarities along with the symbolism of the snake and the Canaanites, and uh, I'm just going to quote from him just so I don't get his view wrong. So he says, Genesis 1 to 3 prophetically foreshadows Israel's exile in order to wed the final form Pentateuch with a prophetic eschatology for why Israel needs to cleanse the land. Essentially, Adam and Eve are told to cleanse the land like Israel is, you know, get rid of the snake. And uh, just like Israel is said to get rid of the Canaanites and all the other different people. So um, like, what do you think about that? Um, are you sympathetic to it or do, do you see issues with that? What do you think? Uh, uh, definitely sympathetic to that. Um, what we described in the layer on, on land is not contrary to that. Uh, it just doesn't get into as uh, much of that detail. Uh, one of the things we do touch on in the layer is the idea of um, the command to protect from idolatry. So you, you've got the failure of both Adam and Eve to rid the garden of uh, this paganism, of this idolatry, of this false worship. Uh, and, and of course, Israel has the same issue in Canaan. So I, I, if, if I were to take issue at all with a difference, it would be that in Eden, there, there's not a corruption there that they're entering to purge. Whereas Israel going into Canaan, that there is that. There's something there that there's an evil there that actually needs to be purged. Uh, doesn't mean that there's not a parallel. I just think that there's that's it's a little bit of a different nuance where you know that they're both supposed to guard and protect the land, whether it's Eden or Canaan, and in both cases they fail in various ways to do so. So I'm sure you're familiar with this, um, the language of subdue and rule in Genesis 1. Yes. And uh, Joshua John Vanney, he wrote an article, and he was basically saying that it's extremely harsh, like, language that, you know, killing and even even rape sometimes when it's used. Like, it's always bad language. And, and I don't know if Seth Postel mentions it, but, like, yeah, yeah, no, he definitely does. But he basically says that, like, that's like a precursor to then seeing the snake in Genesis 2 and 3. And, um, like, is that kind of different than what you're saying? Or, like, I don't know, maybe you can help me understand better. Uh, so I'm not as familiar with the, the details on that that Seth has written about, Pastel. Um, mm -hmm. But we do, can I have described the notion of... Uh, subdue and uh, take possession of as being a command to steward this land. So it's very active in the sense of 
going in and bringing order to disorder. Uh, and that doesn't necessarily mean making something bad into something good, right? Because there is there's a beauty to the natural wild. And God says to go into this natural wild and bring some order to this. And so it's not in Eden, it's not taking something bad and turning it into something good, but it's it's turning it into a different kind of good, right? It's bringing order and organization and tending to the garden, and it's giving them work to do that is godly work, right? We, we were not made, human beings were not made to be passive and sit by the pool and drink pina coladas all day. We, we were designed to work. And you see that exemplified in Eden with Adam being given the assignment to, to, to work, uh, and to tend to the, uh, the natural realm, but also then in a spiritual sense to be active in guarding that land against evil coming in. And you know that evil can come in a variety of forms. It can come in kind of as that direct kind of paganism, idolatry. Um, but it can also come in from internally where you become lackadaisical, lazy, failing to tend to the, to the garden. So uh, if – so in that sense, in that possession and, and take dominion of, I don't see that as much as you know, go in and – mine everything and leave huge holes in the ground and drive out everybody that that you don't like and be violent and and mean and you know that, that, that's not what it means though though having said that you know that that makes it sort of sound like you know oh can't we just all get along and and sing kumbaya together that there is an aspect also in that where you know there there are times when it requires the use of more harsh methods in order to accomplish something. I mean, I think of, you know, we, we've, the news has been full of, you know, the, the mass shootings lately. And, you know, for one of, in the, uh, uh, um, which one was it? The, uh, the elementary school where the, the police delayed going in, that they have been highly criticized for not using more violence in order to protect those kids so you know that's kind of a classic example of when taking possession and being a good steward does mean making use of some some violence hmm no that's very fascinating i like that approach um well, great. I appreciate you coming on here. Um, is there anything that you'd uh, like to like to share with our audience as far as like any other books to read or um, website, anything like that? Uh, so you can find uh, more of the things that I've written uh, at my author website, which is gregdavidson.net. That's Greg with two G's, uh, G-R-E-G-G, davidson.net. And that has actually a mix of uh, nonfiction and fiction, actually. So I uh, dabble in science fiction writing that uh, is science fiction with from a Christian worldview perspective. And 
every every book that you'll see in there has a a cultural lesson in it as well as what I think is just a really good story. And you have a website, right? Yes. At the say that again. A website. Yeah, that that's the yeah gregdavidson.net. Uh, you okay, can find yeah. him, you, you told can me that, find yeah. all of those. <laughs> I missed it. Sorry. Um, all right, Greg, I appreciate you coming on here. And um, I'm sure a lot of people will find value in this. And uh, I hope you have a great rest of your day, Greg. Good. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yes, of course.